I thought that was going to be it. Not the fact that we wouldn't see more waves of illness. I just didn't think that it was going to be as disruptive as that wave was. The world stopped. Welcome to Ditch the Lab Coat with Dr. Mark Bonta, a podcast that examines health issues with a critical eye grounded in scientific skepticism. Disclaimer. The Ditch the Lab Coat podcast is exclusively meant for general informational purposes and should not be regarded as a substitute for professional medical services, including medicine or nursing. It does not create a doctor-patient relationship, and any reliance on the information provided in the podcast or linked materials is at the user's own risk. The content is not intended to replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The expressed opinions belong solely to the host and guests and they do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of the hospitals, clinics, universities, or any other organization associated with the host or guests. For the inaugural episode of the Ditch the Lab Coat podcast, I have a good friend and colleague, Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, joining me in the studio for a three-part series entitled COVID-19 Past, Present, and Future. I've known Dr. Chakrabarty for close to 15 years. He was a resident who was training just above me. He currently serves as an infectious diseases specialist at Trillium Health Partners, which is soon to be the largest hospital in Canada. At that hospital, he serves as the head of the Division of Infectious Diseases. He spent 10 years overseeing the development of medical students there, working as the internal medicine clerkship lead. He's done extra training in tropical medicine, working both in Peru and under the tutelage of the late Jay Keystone, one of the tropical medicine experts who worked at Toronto General Hospital. Outside of his passion for infectious diseases and tropical medicine, he loves tennis. He's a huge Rafael Nadal fan. He's a Montreal Canadiens fan in the winter. He still plays old Sierra games and watches pre-1990s Doctor Who episodes by choice. He wants to make it clear that he is not a germaphobe, and in fact, most infectious diseases specialists are not germaphobes. Sure, a lot of them are, but many of them aren't and all of them have a very high amount of confidence in the immune system. It's important to acknowledge this attitude because we're going to digest our experience as we went through these successive waves of COVID-19. And in our first episode entitled COVID-19 Past, we're gonna reflect on some of the statements that uh, he made and I made in the media as it pertained to our opinions around COVID-19, our recommendations around things like social distancing, vaccination, and how to plan for successive waves. We're gonna provide a retrospective commentary on what went well during the pandemic in those early stages and what could have been done differently and at which point our opinions as specialists in the area of medicine began to change. We're going to have a no-holds-barred, candid conversation whereby we look back and reflect on some of the collective actions that our society made during the initial waves of COVID in the past in the aims of providing us with the information and knowledge to approach any subsequent pandemic differently. This is a fun conversation and one of a three-part series whereby we then go through the current state of the pandemic and we talk about moving forward into the future. So without further ado, we're going to get right into the studio and right into this episode today. Welcome, Dr. Suman Chakrabarty. 
What's your uh, professional title and how many initials do you have after your name? <laughs> oh, that's a tough one. So uh, say Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, and I do have the MDFRCPC, but you can also add in the DTMNH, the Diploma of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, which I got in Peru. And that's it. Apart from that, I don't have any of the other stuff. Okay. So you're the what? You're an infectious disease specialist at a very big hospital in Canada? Are you a division head? What's your fancy title there? I do infectious diseases and I'm the division head of infectious diseases at Trillium Health Partners in Mississauga, which is about to be in the next couple of years, uh, the biggest hospital in Canada. Yeah, we have a really busy service. All I do is see patients. I'm not a researcher. The clinical medicine uh, has been a huge part of who I am and obviously the last couple of years, a big part of uh, all of our lives. So that means you're in a clinic seeing colds and flus or in a hospital seeing people with infections? Like what's the general patient that you would see? Yeah, I'm, I'm, most of what I do is inpatient. I have uh, a pretty busy practice and, you know, we're seeing like obviously in the last couple of years, COVID has been the center of everyone's attention. But look, we see all sorts of stuff ranging from tuberculosis to prosthetic joint infections, pneumonias, bacteria in the blood, lots of stuff. But I do have a clinic practice as well. Twice a week, I'll see people who are, you know, they don't need to be admitted to hospital, but they have skin infections that aren't getting better, eye infections, things that uh, need to be treated, but don't need to be done as an inpatient. Now, what about the lady with the worm in the brain? I don't know if you read about that on uh, Google or BuzzFeed. Like, is that a true thing? Yeah, it is. Uh, so one of the reasons I came out to Mississauga is I love tropical medicine. So we see a lot of different types of tropical diseases in people returning from uh, visiting, but also people who uh, grew up in a tropical area and now live here and imported disease. So what you're talking about is something called, I'm sure you're familiar, uh, neurocysticercosis. So for the viewers, this is the larval stage of the pork tapeworm. It's one of the most common causes of seizures across the world. And this particular case was a woman that we saw from Colombia who had not one, not two, but something like 10 of these larvae in her brain. And one was floating in a cavern in the brain called the ventricle. And we were one of the first uh, groups in Canada to take these out surgically. And what did you do with that worm? Did you save it in a little uh, glass jar or an aquarium like like our kid's hamster? <laughs> or did you throw, toss it in the garbage? No, we saved it in a container and sent it to parasitology downtown. Mike Kish, he was the, he's an excellent neurosurgeon. He's the one that uh, helped, uh, he did the procedure. And it was amazing because usually when you see these things, you know, it's, it's in pieces, right? He was able to take the entire larva out of the, the ventricle and you could look at it. Look, it wasn't moving, but you could see the capsule. You could see the little larva inside. It was, it was incredible. And she's doing great. She's doing great. The seizures are gone. Headaches are gone. And uh, I think this was 2013, if I'm not mistaken. So she's doing well a decade later. She got the worm out. So how did she get the worm in her? So this generally comes from the consumption of water or food that's contaminated with human feces. So I, I don't know that that's obviously not very pleasant to think about, but a lot of diseases in the tropics are from that. So this would be somebody who had a tapeworm in their gut, they defecated, and that stool that contains eggs got into the water supply. And it's quite common in places, especially in South America, but we see it all over the world, the Middle East, a lot from India. But the, I would say that the heaviest infestations are in South America. She was from Colombia. So if this is one of the most common causes of seizures worldwide, that means that lots of people got worms in them. Oh, absolutely. Worms, larvae. And look, one thing that you could think is that humans have lived in harmony with parasites 
for decades. And there are lots of theories out there that the parasite has some sort of immune function when it's in your body. And part of the fact being in Canada with individuals who now are now in a clean environment and don't have some of these parasites, you get allergic type things like asthma and eczema. So it's a really, really interesting thing. I, I think that uh, the uh, interplay between humans, hosts, and our external environment, including all sorts of pathogens, is not as simple as just uh, pathogen causing disease. I think I'd rather have eczema than a worm in my brain. Um, <laughs> me, me too, speaking. man. Me too. Personally, but it, personally. It's, it's interesting because we're living in a bubble in North America, and you can look at the benefits of things like sanitation and refrigeration at helping us to eradicate these things. Vaccinations, right? If you're thinking about uh, conditions like uh, hepatitis, right? Hepatitis uh, A, hepatitis B. If you're thinking about things like smallpox and measles, rubella, there's been uh, sanitation, refrigeration, certain vaccinations have been quite helpful. But that's not something that the rest of the world has. So it's interesting because uh, COVID is something that the whole world got. Mm -hmm. And uh, regardless of the quality of sanitation and uh, how good your iPhone was, you could still catch COVID-19. And the purpose for our three-part kickoff to the podcast is COVID past, present, and future. And not only are you an infectious diseases expert and specialist at a giant hospital and overseeing the departmental workings within that hospital, but you were one of the faces on the news throughout all of COVID and in the newspapers. We would see you on our national news networks every evening uh, to the point where, you know, grandpa, I live with my father-in-law, he, he knew you. He knew you by face oh, and name, but you, you wouldn't recognize him. And uh, what, uh, too bad for him. <laughs> what a time that was. And yeah, so unlike yeah. worms, which we, we don't really get a lot of worms in our brains, COVID was something that we all lived through and we all had an experience living through. And uh, prior to us starting the conversation today, I shared with you that one of my kids is sick. She's in the back room there with a, a viral gastroenteritis. And it's just so crazy how three years ago, my approach to a child who was vomiting would have been very, very different than it is now, which is yeah. uh, watch YouTube and hear some apple juice. So <laughs> looking back to that time, right? Looking back to the uh, pandemic, when it was declared, when did you know that shit was going to go down? Like we all started seeing warning signs, right? And going back to, it was what, March, 2020? That's right. Uh, that, that's at least when it affected us here. When this went down, when did you start to get a spidey sense that things were going to be drastically different? And what were some of the things that you did to prepare for it? Yeah, look, we, we started hearing about this back in, if you remember, that was 2019, December, there was something happening in China. And I'll admit up front, we heard about this, but it's not that we haven't lived through a pandemic. We actually have. If you remember, uh, I was, I think you and I would have been in like R3, R4. I was an ID fellow when the H1N1 pandemic happened. The response to that was very different. The coverage was very different, but that still was a pandemic. And, you know, I expected it to be something more along those lines. You know, we would see sick people in hospital, but we started hearing more about this on the news. And I think what affected me was the visions that were coming, the pictures that were coming from China, people dying, uh, the refrigeration trucks, all the stuff in uh, France, in Bergamo, Italy, and then New York City, right? So that was kind of what was prefaced. And, you know, I think that around that time was when I was thinking, man, this is like something is happening here. It's not going to be just like H1N1 was. And I'll admit to you that uh, before March, I'm talking about February, I was waking up in the middle of the night, like really worried, anxious, 
I will be frank, I was afraid I was going to die because I knew that regardless of how this manifested here in Canada, I was going to be on the front line of it being an infectious disease doctor, right? Along with, of course, my colleagues in the emergency general medicine, a lot of people would be on the front line, but I was worried. I just had had a, a baby. It was one years old. So there's a lot of stuff going through my mind. And by the time March hit, I was pretty scared. I'm not going to lie. And that's around the time, if you remember, the NBA was canceled. Then the NHL was canceled. The Miami Open tennis thing was canceled. And then I remember coming home from tennis and seeing the gas price had dropped from whatever it was, something over a dollar down to 40 cents. And that's when I knew stuff was happening. What did you do to prepare at home? To be honest with you, most of what we did to prepare was avoidance of crowds. At that time, I still, and I'm saying this in retrospect, had the naive, the naive thought that I could completely avoid infection if I just did certain things. And you know, that was kind of the mantra for a long time. But avoiding going out to large gatherings, like for example, I mean, at that time it was a moot, but going to, I canceled a ticket that I had to go to a NBA game, the Raptors game. We canceled a trip to the Dominican that was planned for a couple of years. So all that kind of stuff was things that I originally did. When I was going to do grocery shopping, I did start putting a mask on because again, I thought that maybe this might help and I was avoiding being too close to people. And that's kind of the extent of what we did initially. And uh, obviously that evolved as as, uh, the weeks wore on. I remember that uh, week vividly. My wife's birthday is March 12th. And so we had a group gathering together and it kind of felt like the last time we were going to see each other because we were all sitting at a dinner table, 10 of us, all young parents. And we got an email or a message that uh, the schools are going to be closed and the government is declaring a pandemic. To some of the other people at the table who don't work in healthcare, and my wife works in healthcare as well. She's an emergency nurse. And to those of us who weren't in healthcare, thought, oh, maybe this will be temporary, right? Or something that's on the yep. news, a bit of an overreaction. Oh, the kids are home. Well, they're home anyways for March break. You yep. know, we'll see, yep. see you in April. But I had the same sense that this was going to be different. And uh, I was actually working uh, downtown at Toronto General, and I was on clinical service on the inpatient uh, medical unit. And I remember uh, coming into work that Friday, and the subway was empty. There's nobody Interesting. There. And I could walk up and down the entire thing, uh, not a single issue to walk through that. And it was like, wow. I got there and there's this sense of anxiety that everybody felt because we knew that something was coming. And then throughout the day, it's sort of like that NBA closure, the NHL closure, all these things. The medical students that were working with us, you know, medical students are on placement, doing their training under you. They all got an email at three o'clock. We were in the room discussing cases and the email was from their dean saying, go home and don't come back. So in the middle of discussions, the three students with me said, you know, we've been instructed to go home. And the rationale and purpose for that was we don't know what's coming and, uh, you know, we don't want our learners to get sick. I don't know if it was a liability thing or what, but they just walked off the job and they were told to do that. And uh, the same for uh, other healthcare workers who were in the training stages, right? So nursing students, physician assistant students. So all of a sudden, these people that were used to kind of sharing these spaces with left. And then that same kind of sense of panic and dread where you're sitting in a room. We've seen the pictures by that point of what's happening in Europe, what was happening in China. And like, should we be sitting here together? And over the coming months, you know, all of a sudden that room became more and more sparse. That room ended up having tape to demarcate where you could sit at an appropriate social distance. We ran out of Virox, which was the uh, solution that we used to wipe down counters. Alcohol hand wash was everywhere and at a minimum, people were hoarding that. 
and things really, really changed. But what I really want to know from you is, as an expert in this field who knows, how long did you think this was going to last for? Like when this first happened in March, did you think this was going to be a temporary, you know, two or three month thing? Or did you think we were in this for the long haul? And how long did you think this was going to last for? Yeah, this is where I think, you know, in retrospect, I've had a lot of reflection to do because initially I thought that this would be something that would uh, be relatively quick. Okay. You know, I'm talking about maybe a six week period. And to be honest with you, even after that first wave came and you remember how our hospitals were empty and we actually weren't, it wasn't that bad. Obviously people did get sick. People did die, but it peaked by mid April and then things started coming down and that wave was done. And to be honest with you, I thought that was going to be it. Not the fact that we wouldn't see more waves of illness. I just didn't think that it was going to be as disruptive as that wave was. The world stopped, right? And, you know, we were kind of coming out of it. There was a bit of a euphoria. But at that time, as an infectious disease specialist, I figured that while we would see this as part of uh, circulating viruses, I didn't think we'd have repeated waves after that and repeated disruptions to our lives. So if I could uh, estimate, maybe I thought it would last uh, six to eight weeks, something along that, but something where, you know, we were seeing death almost a year later. And I, I would say that for us in Mississauga, April, 2021 was March, April, that period was the worst for us. And Delta, which hit uh, Canada, especially in September 2021, was for the rest of Ontario, rest of Canada, right? Rest of the, I, would say, I don't want to say smaller centers, but just not like the hubs like Scarborough, Mississauga, Toronto was. So it was a bit of a wake up call. Now, I don't think that a lot of what we did was justified. I think that a lot of the disruptions to our lives, in retrospect, the school closures for as long as they were, the business closures, that type of thing. This is a lot in retrospect, but I will say that by the end of 2020, when we were kind of doing all of this again, I did start to have my doubts that, look, I know this is a pandemic, but I think that our response and what we're doing might not have been the optimal solution. So wave one, right? The first wave in March, right? March and April of 2020. Did you wash your shoes with alcohol or Virox when you came home from work? Did you shower? Did you burn your clothes? Yeah. So this is excellent. So I want to tell you one thing. I want to put in a plug for my wife, Como. So a lot of people at this point in time were sleeping in separate rooms. They were going sometimes separate houses. So my wife said that I'm not going to leave your side. She told me, and that was one of the things that gave me strength when I went to work is because if you're going to get sick, I'm going to get sick with you. And in the back of our mind, I knew that even if I did get sick, I probably would be okay. But that said, having that person beside you, she's also in healthcare. She's also a nurse, a nurse on medicine. But having that person standing with me throughout like the worst of it was the greatest thing for me. Every day when I came home, yes, I would take my clothes off and shower, but that's the extent of it. I think that we figured out pretty early on that, you know, wiping your groceries down with alcohol, that kind of stuff. That's where my infectious disease knowledge did help, where I thought that, okay, you know, fomites are something, but just wash our hands, do what we normally do with food. We don't have to go to that extent. What's a fomite? A fomite is kind of an inanimate object where say infectious particles, say if I cough and you know the spittle and the, the mucus comes and hits a surface, that surface is a fomite that could potentially transmit the disease to others. Now we, not that fomite uh, transmission didn't happen with COVID, it was definitely not a major form of it. And that was something that was evident early on. That this is more something that spread through generally close contact through the air, but it could in certain situations of poor ventilation go through the air as well. But that's at least where my paranoia stopped. It was more kind of being in a room with lots of people. 
And how much of a difference did you think keeping the windows open made on uh, subways and buses and in offices? That was one of the hallmarks. We can open the windows and we're going to really reduce our risk by 90% of transmission. Do you think that makes a difference? I do think ventilation makes a difference in that I did uh, tropical medicine, my training in Peru, and it was interesting. We went onto a ward. This was back in 2012, and there were TB patients in a room of like 20 people next to somebody who didn't have TB, but part of the endonosocomial TB, and it, it wasn't look, seen to be a major mode of transmission because the windows were open. This is a hospital, tropical hospital room, and all the windows were open. So I knew that that made a difference. But I think where I was a bit more realistic is that by that time that we were realizing that ventilation made a difference, I also realized this is a respiratory virus, okay? This is not just something that I think it was a bit hubristic, if you will, thinking that we as humans could stop the freight train that is a respiratory virus from spreading in the population. And absolutely ventilation helps. There's no doubt about that. But the idea that that would stop the pandemic in its tracks if we just did that for every building, that I think was not uh, realistic. Well, so you mentioned working in tuberculosis wards. And when you said nosocomial, that means that uh, transmission occurs in a hospital setting, right? So from someone with tuberculosis to someone without it. But how is the transmission of tuberculosis, which we know a lot more of, especially at that point in time than we do about COVID or did about COVID, how does the transmission of tuberculosis occur? And why was that surprising to you or not surprising that people who didn't have tuberculosis, who were surrounded by people with it, didn't pick it up? And why you felt the windows being open may have made a difference? Yeah, this is a great thing. And this is part of the, the cognitive dissonance that occurred you know, when we were talking about airborne illness, something that's in the air, which I'll explain in a second, with TB, because I had seen TB before. So the big thing with TB is, with say flu, is that in general with flu, that you're going to get close contact transmission. So let's say if I cough, the vapor, the droplets, the stuff that comes out of my mouth and nose, that can infect somebody else. And in general, it's going to be somebody who's relatively close to you for a certain period of time. Whereas the difference with TB is TB, is, let's say if I'm sharing a room with somebody and I'm like a classroom, for example, and I have tuberculosis, if we're in that room for a sufficient period of time, somebody sitting across the room on the exact opposite side of a large room, they could potentially get infected because the infective particles of TB can kind of float around in the air and they can accumulate over time and they can affect somebody at a distance. And theoretically, you know, if I leave the room the room could still be infective to somebody else who walks in. That's what we call airborne transmission. And one of the things that we can help with this is increasing ventilation. Even knowing this, the most transmission that occurs with tuberculosis is in a household where you're going to have kind of repeated long-term exposure to somebody. This was kind of what was talked about with COVID where initially we thought, all transmission occurs in close contact, which is why that whole thing with the social distance, or they actually used to call it physical distancing before they changed it, where if I stand six meters away, I can completely avoid infection. But what we did find later on that if you're in a poorly ventilated space and you're in there for a long period of time, eventually all of the particles can accumulate. And yes, you can infect somebody who is across the room, But one big thing about that, because this turned into a big controversy, that is a much less common form of transmission. The lion's share of transmission happens in close contact, generally with people in your household. So the same as everything that we've always lived with, flu, RSV, even the kids throwing up with gastroenteritis. 
Because that uh, when you talked about that point of contention and that uh, yeah. strong issue, I know as a healthcare provider, there was a lot of debate about whether or not uh, COVID-19 was airborne transmission, because this would play into how we protect ourselves. Because if I'm going into a room to see a patient with tuberculosis, either suspected or confirmed, I wear a different mask. So I wear the, the famed N95 mask, because if I have that sealed well around my face, I'm not able to breathe in that particulate matter. And the purpose for debate was, were we wearing the right masks? And I, I remember seeing friends of mine having their noses like peeled apart. And you'd see those pictures from New York City where people were wearing an N95 mask with another N95 over it and a cloth mask and then a plastic thing, just masking yep. up to the max because of that ambiguity around there. And I, I remember actually working with trainees who were wearing double masks. And the science about that actually makes no sense. And they were wearing double N95 masks. And I'd have to pull them aside and, and kind of outline things to them. But some people were just not comfortable doing it. And I think it goes back to that whole the unknown aspect of COVID-19. And the purpose of us going through past, present, and future is because we know a lot more now. But then we didn't know, and there were unknowns. You know, how is this transmitted and how lethal is it? I think we actually did know a lot more than we did. Obviously, there were aspects of, uh, of COVID that we didn't know about, but there still were a lot of things that we did know. Like we were acting as if this virus was, uh, you know, a respiratory virus we'd never seen before. We'd seen coronaviruses before. We'd been in pandemics before. We actually had a playbook of how to approach these, which was largely thrown out the window during the pandemic, right? And I think that you're absolutely right. There were unknowns and I'm, I don't want to do revisionist history. I was part of this. I uh, There's a lot of things that I did that in my mind, there was some cognitive dissonance that I know that this stuff doesn't work, but I was scared myself. But I think it was important, as you mentioned, that you have to kind of, you know, after that initial fear, step back and go back to the first principles, knowing what we know, what works and what doesn't, what's going to be worse, what's going to be better and, and employ it. Totally. We need to look back on the fact that we're all scientists at heart and look on the data and objective findings and change our tune. Because I'm in the same as you. I was on the radio in March, you know, physical distancing. I was using that term, you know, I was reading about all those runners videos of particulate matter based on the wind. And people were asking, how far should I sit on the subway? And what should I be wearing when I go to the grocery store? And should I be Lysoling my shoes? Like these questions were coming through. And when we had limited information at the starting and the message was to be as safe as possible, I was saying that, but then the message changed. And so what were some of the things looking back to the early response rates that you said that you wish you could take back? You know, you knew what you knew then. What are some of the things that you were saying? You know, wear an N95 mask when you're alone in the car? Were you saying that? No, I wasn't quite saying that. But I, I think I think a lot of it was kind of the entire approach. Okay, so for example, I mean, one of the things I remember saying on the news is that, you know, if you're going to go outside to exercise, right? Stay close to your house. Don't go to the park because that goes against the spirit of what we're trying to do. And I think, why was I saying that? Like, we know that respiratory viruses, which this was, the coronavirus, or even something like measles, which is highly, highly infective as well. That when you're outside, the chance of any of this stuff going down, it doesn't matter what virus you are, is very small. But again, like this idea that if we kept people apart, we could interrupt the pandemic. I got caught up in that. And that's one of the things I would say that was, I would take back. And the other thing, just in general, like I understand, you know, in a pandemic, I think it is good that 
trying to just avoid large crowds and maybe, you know, big events, the temporary closure of those, I get that for, again, a temporary short period of time. But the idea that I was having, you know, don't see your friends, don't see your family. Like it was easy for me to say I had a family at home, but for all those people that didn't have family, they live by themselves uh, in different cities, like that in the long term caused so much damage that we are still seeing today. And that's part of what I wish I could have taken back. Yeah. Totally the uh, disparity between the rich and the poor, that that gap just got a lot wider. All of those things that you mentioned, you know, stay inside, get your groceries delivered, keep your bubble. Remember keeping a bubble? So oh, the bubble, yes. Your yes. best friends for, uh, you know, soirees and buffet dinners, that was totally fine. Keeping your family close, you know, ready access to healthcare. And it really spread wide a gap that already exists between the rich and the poor, and uh, between people who are in the lower wage gig economy who just got pummeled by these restrictions and rules without the opportunity to work from home and do everything on Zoom, having to go out there, expose themselves, delivering the food. So that, that was awful. I think when I look back to my messaging as well around that time was similar. And I wonder if it was because I didn't want people I cared about to get sick. I was seeing the Toronto General Hospital ICU filled up with youngish people receiving extracorporeal oxygen support. So this is a level above the ventilator, these giant catheters in their neck connected to a machine breathing for them, taking the blood you know, filtering out the carbon dioxide, putting oxygen back in, like that's pretty crazy stuff. And to see that every day, oh my gosh, I doesn't, I don't want this to happen to people. And there was also that sense of preservation of the healthcare system. Yes. When this yes. first came through, when I would, I, I sit on one of the critical care committees here for our region, and there was a fear that we had underprepared in terms of our stock of mechanical ventilators, so breathing machines, and we had underprepared by a factor of ten. So we were going to be short and we were going to have to turn people away at the door and people were going to die outside because we just didn't have enough ventilators and people to run them. And, you know, we got creative, we got smart over time and we managed to give everyone who needed one and wanted one a ventilator throughout COVID. But boy, were we afraid that we weren't going to have enough resources to provide that. So part of the messaging was we're going to just destroy our fucking hospitals if everyone gets sick at the same time. And obviously, as information and time went on, it became clear that that wasn't going to happen. But all of those downstream impacts, you talked about the downstream impact of isolation and loneliness, the economical impact, right, of closing things, the impact on our children of shutting schools down. When you look at the impact of the healthcare system, of all of those usual things, right, mammograms, cancer screening, going in to see your doctor in person your doctor or nurse practitioner, be assessed and say, boy, that lump looks abnormal. None of that happened. And none of that happened because we shut it down. We pushed to virtual and it took a lot to get us back. And people were afraid to go in and seek healthcare. And so those things happened at that point in time. But when was it throughout these waves? We had wave one, wave two, wave three. We had Omicron, we had Delta, we had BJ, X, all of these waves. At what point did you start to realize that this was too much? And at what point did your messaging change? So first of all, one thing that I do want to kind of, and this is related to the answer, is jump off of something you said about the healthcare system. So one interesting, it was almost implicit uh, that the healthcare system needed to be preserved, which I agree with. We, you know, we want to be able to take care of people. But then we kind of implicitly put that responsibility on the population rather than the government supposed to be running that and, uh, you know, systematically changing things and making differences so that we can have 
a healthcare system that looks after our population, we implicitly put that responsibility on the population. So I had that same thing, Mark. I was I was going to work and I'd see all these young people in the ICU on ventilators. And it's your fault. You did that to yourself. If you hadn't partied, if you hadn't gone to see your family, you wouldn't have gotten sick and then taken up a bed. Now, of course, that's kind of what it was coming across as. And of course, I treated people the same, but you would get this anger almost that like, why can't people just stay at home? Okay, why can't people just listen? That's how I initially thought. And when things changed for me was after the first wave was done, Again, we started like kind of going into uh, school. Remember the whole school starting back in 2020 was a, was a nightmare. But then when the cases started going up, we were obsessed with cases. It was implicit. Again, this was our fault. It was our fault that cases were going, as opposed to a respiratory virus that naturally goes up for millennia in this pattern. It was our fault that this is happening. And when we started seeing cases happening again, I started seeing Amazon worker after Amazon worker. There's lots of them. There's lots of different types of factory workers, but there's lots of Amazon workers because the Amazon factory is uh, partially in Mississauga and in Brampton. So I stopped and asked one of them. I said, hey, can you tell me why are there so many Amazon workers here? And this single conversation changed the way I looked at things. The person told me every time we go into restrictions, we go into lockdowns, okay, people stay at home the Amazon orders go through the roof. They double and they triple. So they need more workers to cover. So we go and cover and then we are getting COVID. And it was like, I got hit by a ton of bricks. I'm like, man, we're doing all these things to protect people who have the ability to stay at home. Largely, I would say, you know, higher socioeconomic status. You may have heard the term laptop class. The people who are able to do works, you know what I mean? Meanwhile, the people who are working in factories, working in industries like Canada Post, all sorts of things, these are the people that were bearing the brunt of this. So yeah, we were protecting people, but we were downloading that risk onto those individuals. And because of Trillium, I think I'm not the only one, but working in the Peel region, which is the largest manufacturing sector in all of Canada, I saw the effect of that, of what we were doing. Now, I'm not saying that I want people to get sick, but if you want a, a functioning society, it was going to be inevitable, but I think that we worsened things by doing that. And I was really upset that I hadn't seen that initially. And even though after that point, that was, by the way, I would say September, October, 2020. After that, I was quite against lockdown, even though we did have a couple more after that. We still had the third wave, which was the one of the worst for me. But that's when my messaging changed that We have a bad thing happening here, but maybe trying to keep people apart and stopping the economy, keeping kids out of school, maybe that wasn't the answer. That's a great point. The responsibility was shifted onto the populace rather than uh, staying with the stewards of the healthcare system who are the government. Because implicitly, what happened for all intents and purposes was we prioritized those people who were going to get really, really sick and need life support and need life-sustaining measures. And all of the resources went there. And that meant that people who were waiting to get their knees replaced, people who were waiting to see the psychiatrist for severe depression, all those people were prioritized at a lower level because we couldn't have people dying. And I believe for me, it was between wave two and three where I started to feel that, sure, people will die of COVID, right? And that's awful. Death is awful and dying of an illness, especially respiratory illnesses. I saw a lot of people die. It's sad, right? It's like drowning in your own lungs. 
But the downstream impact was people were dying differently. Are they going to have their cancers missed at stage one and it presents at stage four and it's irreparable? The admissions at the pediatric hospitals for eating disorders and psychotic outbreaks and behavioral issues amongst children. So illness and death is happening differently a little bit later. And so any way you slice it, our healthcare system is a finite resource and we need to preserve it. And we need to manage it perhaps differently than we did at that point in time. But as a young parent, it was between waves two and three where I realized, boy, my kids aren't making friends. They're not making social connections. Their diets are shit. I got a hyper nine-year-old who was six then. Having him do Zoom grade one, just to get him to sit in that chair. You want some chocolate? You want some chips? You know, they're not running around with their friends. They're sitting in front of a laptop. And then I started to get frustrated because I recognized that the policies were actually being made and created by people who aren't living that experience and people who by and large can sit like we are here virtually in the safety of their own homes, Mm -hmm. checks rolling through weekly, letting the rest of the world know how to live. And that rest of the world often doesn't have an option. And I think about these people that you identified in the service industry, gig economy, grocery store workers, factory workers, meat packing factory people, and uh, children, right, by and large, who just had to live by these restrictions and closures. But there's a lot of tension, right? Because as someone who practices clinical medicine as a young parent, uh, there was a lot of uh, tension amongst the medical community. And I think to epidemiologists, right, so people who look at numbers, people who by and large are bean counters, who look at, well, if everyone in the world stays in their room and doesn't leave, nobody's going to pick up COVID. And that's true. If everyone stayed in a solitary confinement for a month, self-sufficient, self-contained, we would probably uh, get rid of COVID, but then other things that have different lifespans and timelines and these worms that are living in uh, pig poo, those are going to still come (laughs) through us. And so there's that tension as well, which is if you just look at numbers, sure, looking at case counts, keeping people inside, you can eliminate COVID or reduce that probably, right? If you go to the extreme. But what's happening to people when they sit inside and become lonely and don't see their friends? Holy geez, people are, this guy never used to drink that much. He's having beer at lunch on this Zoom meeting. That's pretty abnormal, but it wasn't then. Boy, I barely recognize that person. They put on 30 pounds of weight. Well, no shit. They're sitting at home on a sofa doing Zoom meeting, trying to raise their kids on the internet. And so that started to really bother me. And I started to realize the downstream impact of things. So that ties into the vaccine, right? Because then there was Mm -hmm. this push for the vaccine. The world's working together to create a vaccine. What were your expectations and thoughts about the vaccine? Was this going to save us all? So this is another area in retrospect that I think I need to do a lot of reflection. Because so first of all, an idea of a vaccine that completely shuts down a mucosally based illness, like one that can kind of, you know, in mucous membranes, is going to be difficult, if not impossible, to eradicate, right? And, you know, I think that at that time, we were one year in. So December 2020 was when the first vaccine doses were going out in England and all these different places. And at that point, I was so starving to get back to normal is that there's certain thoughts in my head, well, this vaccine will probably be good. I think it's going to certainly be helpful. But it went beyond that. I was thinking, oh, this is going to stop the pandemic. We're going to stop the pandemic in its tracks. And the other thing that really bothers me is that I thought, okay, if we get a certain number, if not everybody vaccinated, the pandemic's over. Here we go, right? 
And look, I think that understandably there was some euphoria that went, look, we're here. We're coming out of a, a second wave. We have this vaccine. It's going to be amazing. Everything's going to be good. And I got my vaccine on December 31st, 2020. So that was my first dose. And I remember in the hospital the week after that, oh, I'm protected. Everything's good. I think that where I failed as an infectious disease doctor is not considering that, well, look, you're going to likely be able to stop severe disease, which is, by the way, amazing, right? But the idea that the vaccine is going to stop infection, especially in the long term, is not going to be realistic. And a lot of people were talking about that to me. I would say more more um, experienced doctors, they're like, I don't want to get my hopes up too much. And initially, when you started seeing the vaccine coming out, I think the greatest thing that I saw was the third wave for us, where the second wave was just coming down. And the third wave was on the heels of the second wave. If you remember, that was the initiation of the UK variant, or I guess it would have been alpha, alpha. And when that came through, that was probably the peak of virulence. I was seeing pregnant women, 30-year-olds dying, 40-year-olds on the ventilator. It was crazy, right? But what was interesting is we did not see a single person from a nursing home for a period of time. So it's clear that it certainly did something, but that reinforced the unrealistic belief in my head that that was going to end the pandemic. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because it kind of colored what I looked like downstream. Because then I thought to myself, oh man, if we just get everybody vaccinated. And when people were asking me questions in retrospect, these were good questions to ask. And I think that the confidence that we demonstrated to people was, I think, unwarranted. I think it's still good. I still wanted people to get vaccinated, but we should have been more upfront with, you know, we don't know this. We don't know that. This is what the vaccine can offer. This is what it can't. But in my brain, I was like, if we got everybody vaccinated, we're going to be out of the pandemic. And thankfully, I wasn't in it very long, but I started thinking to myself, oh, why is that person not getting vaccinated? I was angry at people that weren't. But then when I started to see the way that we responded to people that weren't getting vaccinated, including healthcare workers, I realized very quickly that this is not the right way. Well, I think the messaging did need to be different. And by and large, that's because immunologists or people who study and create vaccines know a lot Mm -hmm. more about them than the general public. And the general public, boy, did we ever become good at airborne transmission and uh, viral transmission and breathing particulate matter in and stages of infectivity, like when you're contagious versus when you're not. So boy, did our public by and large become knowledgeable about uh, viral illnesses to a general basic degree. But not all vaccines are the same. And it was never explicitly explained to the populace that the purpose of the vaccine is very different from the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine that we give our children and that we actually have as a requirement for our children to go to school. And I would love to hear from you the difference in those vaccinations, right? Measles, mumps, rubella, and the diseases that we've by and large eradicated compared with the COVID vaccine. One thing I will say that I think when you're looking at the messaging from back then, like the trial that came out for the Pfizer vaccine, for example, it did actually look at infection. And there was a huge difference beneficial for taking the vaccine versus infection, not severe disease. It wasn't powered for severe disease. It was the AstraZeneca one that was actually show that it reduced death, right? So the thing is, is that I think I forget the exact time periods, maybe, uh, I think maximum two months. Obviously, during that period of time, you're going to see the maximum effect. But then afterwards, we started seeing cases in Israel of vaccinated people 
et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think that that's important. But the difference with COVID vaccine versus a measles, mumps, rubella, whereas COVID, it was awesome at the time, especially in 2021 for alpha and delta in blunting severe disease. It kept people out of the hospital and even people who were hospitalized kept them out of the ICU. It did that, right? But it did not stop transmission. So when you look at this, this is a vaccine that was much better designed for individual risk factor decrease than on a population level. It, it didn't really have the ability to have a decrease in the overall population. Maybe for a short time it did at the beginning, but not something that was uh, robust long-term. Whereas something like measles, it's a different way that you get infected with the virus. It's not at the mucosal level. It's more intravascular. So that vaccine can actually stop transmission. So there has a, it has a public health benefit. And, you know, especially in children who can spread this. Measles is something that the most people that get it don't get all that sick from it, but there are kids that get hospitalized for meningitis, encephalitis, so inflammation of the brain and its lining, severe lung inflammation, severe pneumonia, and the scary one, something called, doesn't really matter what it stands for, SSPE, kids who get measles and they're fine. They recover. And then something like 10, 15 years later, they suddenly have this kind of downward trajectory in their cognitive abilities and end up in a vegetative state in a wheelchair, SSPE. And so these are things that, you know, you do want to be able to prevent. And the cost of that downstream is immeasurable and irreparable. And it makes sense to have these vaccines for children, for all children. Whereas we knew what the risk profile for COVID was you know, within six months of the disease. And the idea that everybody needed to be vaccinated with everybody having the same risk, that was not, I think, warranted in terms, it was simpler, but it wasn't warranted from a risk factor modification or a public health uh, intervention. Now, what about mutations and different variants? Now, does measles and rubella and mumps, do they have different variants and mutations? So these vaccines, I mean, they do in a certain extent. They're certainly not as, I would say, have the potential of changing. The viruses, you know, the vaccine is pretty much as efficient now as it was before because the virus uh, genomes are, are generally stable. Whereas respiratory virus, but especially COVID, we saw that, yeah, there was viral evolution and it was quite quick at first, right? That was not something abnormal. That's what happens with all respiratory viruses, especially in a pandemic. And look, I'll tell you one thing, what's happening now with COVID is the same as what happened with other respiratory pandemics is that now you can say JA1XBB, you can tell me all of these things, but we've had Omicron variant stability since December, 2021. And that marks generally the end of a pandemic and, you know, something that's much more stable in the population. So these mutations rapidly showed us, at least with COVID, uh, rapidly showed us that the vaccine was not able to stop transmission, was not able to stop infection. People got it. But if you knew your immunology, the ability to stop severe illness was certainly modified. And that was very, not permanent, not the right word, it was durable. It was durable. So we had evidence on the ground that if you had two doses of vaccine and you were under the age of 70, that had a 99% effectiveness, not efficacy, effectiveness, real world data keeping you out of hospital. But despite that, we kept pushing boosters on otherwise young, healthy people, whereas we really could have changed our messaging to target it to the higher risk, older individuals who needed it. Yeah, it quickly became a mantra of you need to do this. It was a badge of honor, right? 
wearing your mask early on, you wore that because you cared. And if you didn't, you didn't care. And if you weren't getting vaccinated early on, it's all because you want to get everyone sick, right? It became a uh, very polarizing thing. It was quite interesting. And those polarizing views persisted even as the evidence manifested. Do you remember, Mark, the one about the whole thing, the pandemic of the unvaccinated? I used that line once, and that's that's probably the single line that I wish I could take back. I said that on the national news because Fauci had said it earlier that day. So at Biden, that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. I said it once and then what the heck am I talking about? Like, this is a respiratory virus. You know, yes, there is an interaction between that and the human population in immunity, but this is not, you know, it's not anyone's fault that this is happening. Well, I feel it's that human aspect of our work and the emotional aspect of what we were dealing with is it's stressful. Working in hospitals is stressful for the nurses, the personal support workers, respiratory therapists, doctors. It's stressful. It's stressful working in that unknown environment, right? Coming home and the next day you have a bit of a sore throat, probably because you're just tired and are thirsty, but you don't know if this is COVID and now you're going to be sick and and you're going to be on your deathbed the next day lack of sleep, the impact on home of having your children at home and the uncertainty in homeschooling, and then being expected to give recommendations to people and to hospitals about things, seeing people die, right? It's hard to watch people die. We watch people die. We watch people be very sick. We had conversations where people asked us to stop treating them. And I had a lot of patients who were unvaccinated, who were critically sick, who asked me if they could get vaccinated. You know, Now they want to do it. And, you know, it wouldn't have made a difference then. And then truthfully, having the information that we have now, it probably wouldn't have made a difference uh, anyhow, right, to them, depending on their pre-morbid state, their other health conditions, et cetera. But it was a very emotional thing. And you want to be doing the right thing. You're dealing with all of this stress. You wanted to be giving the right messaging. But at some point in time, we became woke, right? We became woke. Mm-hmm, yeah. And I remember you were the same sitting in uh, meetings and, you know, pandemic control meetings and, you know, at the, at the teaching hospitals, like residents were dropping like flies and med students were dropping like flies. And if you had a runny nose, you were off work for 21 days and you had yeah. this isolation yeah. and self-testing and rat testing. And it's about protecting your patients and protecting each other. Uh, but quickly our workforce had uh, dwindled and we poured all our resources into that first wave. And then by wave three, we were running on fumes. And this is when you know, by and large, we weren't getting a lot of critically sick people in, but like a lot of people are just coming in with the dwindles from uh, COVID and the vaccinated groups. And uh, they were chewing up our resources. But at some point, I think you and I both became woke to it. And uh, we started to question and challenge some of these things. And if you look at where we are right now, it's very different than where we were two years ago. If I can give you like another anecdote. So there's a a couple of, I told you about that uh, Amazon worker. A very interesting thing that I noticed, again, this is another idea of like, you know, the the narrative challenging the idea that we all need to do something, forcing people to do stuff that they don't want to do. And I think this is where I matured a bit as a clinician. I noticed that in the Delta wave, you know, we were actually really good in Mississauga because so many people had already been exposed, right? But what we were seeing, uh, the people we were seeing coming into hospital were largely not just unvaccinated, but unvaccinated and unexposed to COVID. So they had never seen the virus before, so they had zero immunity. And it became very clear early on, especially with the demographics of where I work, that everybody coming in was Eastern European, Polish, Ukrainian, Russian, Romanian. And why is this happening? 
why was this happening? There has to be something to it. So again, I always like to talk to people, get their stories. I'll never forget the one guy, 42 years old, he was dying of COVID. And he said to me, you could offer me the vaccine right now and tell me it would cure me. I still wouldn't take it. I'm like, why? Why is that? He goes, look, I grew up in a communist regime, a very authoritarian regime. And the government, I saw the government do all sorts of stuff, including forcibly vaccinate my parents. And that story was coming out over and over and over again. And these are like independent people. They don't know each other. They had in common that they came from that kind of Eastern Bloc communist types of regimes. And then I thought to myself, look, I want everybody to get vaccinated to protect themselves. But who am I to force people to do it? Right. I think it would be a good idea to do it. But do I really want to force someone out of their job, out of their ability to move around the public to do things, limit them because they don't want a medical intervention. And I think that was another kind of learning experience for me that this whole authoritarian way of iron fisted way of going about things was probably not the right way. And it, we lost a lot of people doing that. I mean, I meaning uh, the messaging, we lost them. Totally. If you think about it too, it's rather foolish that uh, our healthcare leaders and uh, government by and large was chastising those who weren't seeking uh, vaccination and weren't quote-unquote following the rules, but did their best to make sure that the beer store and LCBO, right, the Liquor Control Board, <laughs> remained open for people to drink and uh, dutifully made sure that uh, cigarettes were stocking the shelves of 7-Eleven and people could smoke their eyeballs out. That's just happening anyways, supported fully by the government. But then shame on you if uh, you go on a crowded bus without a mask. And uh, shame on you if you don't get vaccinated. So the kind of the polarization and the emotions and the, you know, the conspiracy theories, the microchips and, and the yeah. tete-a-tetes, right? Twitter, like, do you, do you use that or X? Do you X. use that or did you stop because of what happened during the pandemic? Were you, were you involved in any Twitter fights? Absolutely. I used Twitter all the way through the uh, Twitter 1.0 pre-Elon Musk. And yeah, and I felt like from a messaging standpoint I, that I was helping, you know, just to kind of get like some information out there, hopefully reliable about uh, the virus itself, what we're seeing in the hospital. Lo I got a lot of heat, um, but I made a rule for myself. Uh, um, you guys all know Isaac very well, Dr. Bogach. He's a very good friend of mine. And he got a lot more heat than I did, but we get a lot of vitriol, not just from the public, but also some of our our fellow physicians really coming on and like, you know, swearing at you, saying disparaging things publicly, calling out your credibility. And the rule that we made up for ourselves is that we, I never once responded to anything like, that was negative in that regard. And look, I got a little bit of death threats, but it was mainly like just like calling me irresponsible, wanting to kill granny, wanting to fuel anti-vaccine rhetoric. That, that's another thing that I got. And I never once, I can say that now, it's 2024. I never once responded to any of those. And it was quite toxic. And now I love it. I've lost my blue check. If I post something, I get like two or three <laughs> likes or whatever you call them. And it's, it's, I, I'm out of the public eye in that regard. And I'm happy. So how did you lose your blue check? So when, when Elon paying? came in, that's exactly when, when Elon okay. came and he changed it. So, and, and I'm not going to pay for that. And look, I, look, I am a, I'm a, a verified, a verified. I mean, I have my license as an infectious disease doctor, but I don't need to tell the world that he who is king does not need to tell others he is. I remember my dad used to tell that to me when I was young, but I don't mean to say I'm a king. But what I am saying is that I don't need to prove to people that I'm an infectious disease doctor. I am. 
I do 48 to 50 weeks of clinical a year. I see COVID patients face to face and I saw them since April the 20, April 2020. I don't need to tell others that I'm doing that. But I do think that if I'm saying something, it's not because I'm talking something out my ass. I'm giving an informed opinion. It might be different than other people in the field, but I know this field very well as well. But wouldn't that blue check still be nice? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess if I had I would that follow blue check, you if I you could, had a blue check. You should follow me. I, I talk about uh, Rafael Nadal and his injuries all the time. That would be more fun than COVID. Well, maybe I will. But I think the messaging that we've heard throughout our conversation is uh, data changes. Science evolves as we get more information and as we have more experience. And this was the first time, by and large, something, I guess, this virulent that made so many people sick all at the same time happened in an era of globalization where we were able to work together to pool our resources and data, where uh, different countries worked towards creating vaccines, you know, Operation Warp Speed or whatever Warp it was speed. in the States. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we got to learn what uh, the different outcomes were and people who had viral vector vaccines, right, AstraZeneca, and people who had mRNA vaccines, a new, a new technology, Moderna and Pfizer, and then uh, how those vaccines worked in countries where they're perhaps not as uh, regulated and uh, as created as safely as they are in North America and Europe. And we had a chance to learn from that and that, that learning and that knowledge should definitely dictate and influence what we say now. So I really want to thank you for your time. And I do look forward to leapfrogging into a conversation on our next episode about how we're using that information now in the present and all of those downstream impacts of these closures and the isolation and the lineups now in the emergency departments and access to the healthcare system. What should we be doing and what are we doing now? So that's where I'd like to uh, meet with you next time we get together. So thank you. Absolutely. It was a great conversation and looking forward to the next one. Well, there you have it, folks, a candid conversation with Dr. Chakrabarty. Looking back at our collective experience during the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic and the successive waves, it was great to really look back on that experience, given what we know now, and talk about things like, were we too quick to shut down and lock down? Were we too slow to reopen? Do you really need to social distance? vaccination, it's a great thing, but how many vaccines do we need to have? Some of the misconceptions that were out there about spreading, especially as it pertained to the children and the school-aged population, really looking at those disparities between the rich and the poor. And that's something that bothered both of us, as you could tell. Very few people have the luxury of working from home and sitting in their home offices and having groceries delivered and food delivered and not having anything to worry about. So it's actually quite impractical what we did, and it really impacted some people far worse than others. And when you really tease that apart, it was those at alternate ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. You know, if you look back on what Dr. Chakrabarty said in the mainstream news earlier on in the pandemic, along with myself on those early phases, we were moving with the information that we had on the ground at that time. And it was clear that we both have an element of fear, you know, we're asked to share our opinion out there. We're asked to say, what should we do if someone at home has a runny nose? And if you go back to April 2020, well, we really didn't know much. You know, we saw videos of people dropping dead in the streets in China and people dying outside hospitals in Italy. 
And that's scary, not just to lay people, but to people of us who are working in those healthcare environments. And then to come to work every day and have people very sick from COVID-19, dying of respiratory failure, you know, and wondering if you're going to be next or if you're going to bring it home to your friends and family, you know, that's stressful and you want to give good information out there. But it's clear that as we get more information and as a pandemic makes its way through the entire planet and we have an opportunity to learn from different people's experiences, you know, some countries went with the letter rip hypothesis, other countries forcibly locked down. And you can compare those two and you can look at what the outcomes were, how people did, how they fared in different countries. That's how we really came up with a lot of the different treatment algorithms, antivirals, steroids, you know, when to put somebody on the ventilator. And so we learned a lot from that, but you really can acknowledge that there was a point in time where we had information to maybe act differently, and perhaps it took us a little bit too long to make some changes. And hopefully for future pandemics, we'll be able to act in a little bit more responsible fashion. But we'll definitely get into that in the next episode. I have Sumon back in the studio, and we're going to talk about COVID-19 present, and then obviously talk about how this applies to things in the future in our third episode. What a great inaugural episode to Ditch the Lab Coat podcast. Great to have Dr. Chakrabarty in the studio today to provide his candid opinion and to have that really personal conversation. That's something that I really value and look for in all the guests on the show. So it was great to have him on and looking forward to having him back on for the next episode. And thanks to all of you out there in the listening audience for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Ditch the Lab Coat with Dr. Bonta, the home of science-based skepticism. Tune in next Wednesday for another healthcare conversation. For more information, please visit labcoat.fm.